Welcome to the Linden First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of August 1st from Pastor Brett Cottrell. How many of you are good? I mean, you love the opportunity to keep a secret. I mean, it thrills you when someone tells you something you didn't know and then follows it up with, but don't tell anybody. That just makes your day. Or are you like, you know, the rest of us, when you find out something you didn't know, what's the first thing you want to do? Tell it. There you go. <laughs> Let's face it. Now, we obviously, there's a value in being someone who's able to keep a secret. You want to be able to be respected. You want to be able to give your word and have that honored and all that type stuff. There's no doubt about that. So don't, don't misunderstand me. But we like telling people stuff that they don't know, don't we? <laughs> and uh, how many, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen social media, and we like telling people what it is they don't know. When we come to Acts chapter 17 this morning, we're going to see Paul make the unknown known. Paul has some information, and he cannot wait to let others know what it is. If you will join with me this morning in reading Acts chapter 17, we're going to begin in verse 16. And remember, Paul has been kicked out of Thessalonica. He's been, picked out, he's been kicked out of Berea. And now they've kind of whisked him away to Athens for some downtime. At least that's kind of what the idea is. And he's waiting for some friends to show up. And in the meantime, he does a little walking tour of Athens. And here's what he finds. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Now also some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus of the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming. For you know, you're, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone and an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you make known the unknown? Would you stir within our hearts the same thing you stirred within Paul? And may we encounter you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, again, remember the last two visits that Paul's had, both in Berea and in Thessalonica. He has gone to the synagogues. He has reasoned with the Jews. And the, the gospel spread to the, the local Gentile population. The result has been he was kicked out of Thessalonica. He was run out by those who, who were angry at the gospel. In Berea, it was a better reception until those people from Thessalonica showed up and ran him out of there as well. And so Paul goes to Athens and we were to, if we were to explore more of the history, we would find that he's, he's waiting for some friends of his to show up. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up in, in Athens to get done with their work in Berea and Thessalonica. And he's kind of, if you will, killing some time. That really is the, the idea. And he's going to be heading on to a town called Corinth pretty, pretty soon. But in the meantime, Paul does a little sightseeing. He finds himself walking around the streets of Athens. I had the chance to do that. It's been about 20 uh, yeah, it was 1995 I got a chance to go to Athens. And what you'll find today is you'll find, many of the, 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 you'll find the ruins and the relics of many of the same temples and statues that were there in Paul's day. Now, they're not standing up in good shape anymore. They're, they're in museums or they're in pieces or whatnot. But you'll see some of the same things. There's a lot of history to walk around. And as Paul walks around here, the Bible says that in his spirit he was provoked now, I, was, I want you to know this word provoked has this idea of being spurred. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says that we as believers are to spur one another on to good works, kick each other in the, in the shins to get each other to do the right thing. It's the same word. And it's, it's also the same word that we saw a, couple, uh, a few weeks ago uh, when Paul and, and Barnabas had a disagreement over John Mark. It's the same word. It was a sharp disagreement. In other words, Paul's walking around seeing these idols, and it doesn't just mildly annoy him. It ticks him off. Now, Paul is used to idols. Paul grew up in a world where there are idols and temples everywhere he went. I mean, every town Paul goes to, again, we've mentioned several of them already through the last uh, few months as we've been working our way through the book of Acts. He sees idols and temples everywhere he goes. But something in his spirit as he walked through Athens and saw the absolute, every street corner, Every place you go, an idol to something, it began to get under his skin in a way that it hadn't before, for whatever reason. Probably just the absolute amount of it. He saw idolatry. He saw lostness. He saw people praising everything and everyone other than God everywhere he went in Athens, and it provoked his spirit. It made him uneasy. It made him even perhaps angry. Now, one thing that's going to give us a, a little clue in is to Paul's character. Now, Paul is going to obviously go, he's going to begin preaching here, and he's going to be sharing the truth. But I want you to see the beginning of what Paul, what, what spurred Paul on here. Now, does Paul have a love for the people of Athens and for the Gentiles and for the Jews who don't believe in Christ? Absolutely. 
But what spurs Paul on here is not so much that, so much as it is, wait a minute, I know God, and God is not getting his just due here in Athens. That is Paul's motivation. In fact, let me, it's not, by the way, it's not just, it's not just Paul. Evangelism begins, obedience begins, the Christian life begins with a love for God. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 12, and this is, of course, quoting the Old Testament. The first and greatest commandment is what? That we should love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. In other words, Jesus is commanding us that our basic motivation, our basic life is to be moved on by, first and foremost, a love of God with every part of our being, every part of our life. So from your thought life to your motivations, to your finances, to your relationships, your work, I don't care what it is, the way you do that should be first and foremost motivated by your love for the Lord. Jesus himself would continue to say in places like John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. What is Jesus' first love? It's the Father himself. Does Jesus love us? Yes. Guess who he loved first? The Father. That's his motivation. Jesus' desire is to honor and to make known the Father. He wants the, the will of the Father done. And this is where evangelism, this is where outreach, this is where loving our neighbor begins by loving the Lord first. And Paul sees in the, in the city of Athens a people who are loving everything they can possibly find except the one who made it all. Except the Heavenly Father Himself. And it's Paul's desire to see God honored. This is, again, this is even Jesus' first motivation. So it bothers Paul, if you will, that God is not being worshipped. By the way, this is the motive for, even in our day, this is the motive for missions. This is the motive for evangelism. The fact that God deserves to be worshipped. Again, Paul loves people. Paul wants to see the, the people there in Athens come to know the Lord, but more than that, he even wants to see God worshipped. He has a zeal for the name and the glory of God. By the way, again, don't misunderstand me. We need to be loving other people. It's one of the hallmarks. In fact, just a while ago as we prayed in 1 John chapter 4, we saw that if you don't love those around you, you cannot say that you love God unless you're a liar. Those two things don't go hand in hand. If you love God, you will love others. But it begins first and foremost with that love of God. Because I guarantee you, the people around you will annoy you sometimes. And if your obedience to God's command is based upon how you feel about somebody else at any given point in time, it may wane a little bit. There have been, over the years, countless missionaries countless evangelists, countless gospel believers who have gone around the world from China to, to Arkansas, who have shared the gospel and have been rejected and have been made fun of and have been mocked. And if they stopped sharing the gospel every time someone rejected them or didn't love them back or even based upon how they felt about that person in the given day, guess what would happen to the spreading of the gospel? They'd probably begin to, to taper off a little bit. But what is it that motivates 
someone to share the gospel, to continue sharing the gospel, to continue loving other people even when they don't love you back. It is because you love God first. Because no matter what someone says to you or does to you, you know that He, the Father, is worth talking about all the time, no matter the reception. So loving the Lord and having a spirit that's provoked when God does not get His just glory is where this all begins for Paul as he's walking through the streets of Athens. It is the glory of God as his motive. And this is the, this is the motive of missions. This is the motive of evangelism. This is the motive of giving someone something to eat in the name of Christ. This is the motive of giving someone shelter in the name of Christ. It is the glory of God. It's making Him known. It's making sure that it's not just the stars and the sun and the moon and the rocks that are crying out, that we are crying out by our actions and by our, our, our motives. It's proclaiming the Lord's glory. And so as he sees this, he begins to reason with them. Now, I, I, I do like that we talked about this word last week, actually. It's the same word we saw earlier in this chapter. This word reasoning is the word we get the word dialogue from. So, Here's the, here's the picture. Paul's walking around Athens. He sees all these idols. He sees all these temples. He sees all these resources given to worshiping everything other than God. And it provokes his spirit. It makes him angry. It, 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 it produces, produces something sharp in his heart. Now, again, I don't know about you, but I don't know about me. Now, when I see something that makes me angry, when I see something that makes me, Ugh, my response is not generally dialogue. I'm a preacher by heart, folks. <laughs> so, and, and I, I got a hunch I'm not the only one. When we get angry, what do we want to do? We want to tell them what they don't know. And we generally want to do it in a fairly, uh, <laughs> I'll be nice, forceful way. Is, is that fair? Now, here's what Paul does. Now, I'm not saying there's not time to do that, but here's what Paul does. Paul takes his anger and remember, what's his goal? His goal is the worship of God. His goal is that God be made glorified. His, his goal is that God be made known. And he realizes that maybe, perhaps, getting angry at these people who don't know what they're doing might not be the way to go. So he begins a dialogue. That is, he begins a discussion. He sits down, they talk, he talks, they listen. It's an exchanging of ideas. And I'm sure he's He's obviously trying to convince them of the identity of Christ. So his response is not anger, even though he's anger on the inside. His response is to dialogue, to point people to the gospel through discussion. That's what his goal is. He's demonstrating the patience of God. By the way, let me just think, just think about this for a moment here. One, what is it that makes us angry? If you were to walk around uh, uh, Russellville, if you were to, uh, Alan and his family, I'm glad they get, they get a chance to go on vacation this week. And so we uh, lift them up in prayers. We're glad they get a little bit of a break. They're, they're, they're in Washington, D.C. I've, I've been to Washington a few times, and you can walk. There's all kinds of places to walk. And some things inspire you. And let's face it, sometimes you can walk around there and things irritate you. The truth is, you can find anywhere that might irritate you. But the truth is, the, ask, the question is this, what is it that irritates us? 
Is it something selfish or is it the glory of God or the glory of God not getting recognized? What is it that irritates us? Paul's irritated and then his response is to dialogue, to, to love. And what he wants to do through his dialogue is he wants to demonstrate the character of God. See, we demonstrate God's glory and God's character not just by what we say but sometimes in how we say it. I might be saying something that's true but maybe the way I'm saying it does not glorify God. Well, Paul's doing both here. He's seeking God's glory, and he's starting things in a way that he's going he's to be patient. He's going to exercise the people around him the same patience that God had with him. I mean, after all, what's Paul's origins? Does Paul have a history of being a little bit antagonistic and angry and even hostile to the work of God? Absolutely. So is he willing to be patient with others as God was patient with him? Sure enough. And so in the same way, you and I, we have the opportunity to be, perhaps demonstrate the patience of God and the character of God and how we deal with other people. Now, all that to be said, I want you to understand that the situation Paul finds himself in isn't exactly a friendly one. So as we begin looking here in verse 21, he is brought, he's brought before this council. Now let me kind of set the stage for you. This is not a, an academic group of folks going, wow, we're really curious about what this guy says. We might want to believe that. That's not what's happening here in Athens. Uh, and you, can get, you get a couple of hints of this. Uh, Paul is, among other groups, talking with a couple of a, a, a philosophical groups called the, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And it's not important to us this morning what it exactly is they believe, but their attitude is important this morning because what they said was this, who is this idle babbler? Now, I'm, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly a compliment. Here's what they're calling Paul. They're saying that Paul is a pretender. They're accusing Paul of taking a quote from here and a little bit of information from here and an idea from here and kind of amateur hour, putting it all together, pretending he actually knows what he's talking about. They're calling him a pretender. Oh, he just thinks he knows what he's talking about, but he's really just foolish. That's what the idea is. And they also claim, they're also saying, they're also making the accusation about him introducing new deities. Now, why does that matter here for this conversation? And why does that matter for this council? Because in Athens, and uh, there's, a, there's a historian and, and commentator on Acts named Ben Witherington who's made this point, that in Athens at that point in time, again, there were gods everywhere, temples everywhere. If you want to introduce a new deity, you had to go through proper channels. Now, they, they were open to that. You can, you can introduce a new god if you want to, but you've got to go through the Areopagus and you have to set up a temple and, and, then, uh, and prescribe the, the way of worship before they would acknowledge the new deity. So what they're saying to him is, one, he's a pretender. He doesn't really know what he's doing. And then two, he's gone about this the wrong way and he hasn't gone through the challenge he's supposed to go through. He's supposed to, if he wants to, to, to preach a new deity, a new God, he's supposed to go through us, get our approval, set up a temple, and then he can do his thing. But he hasn't done that yet, so he's really out of order. So he doesn't know what he's doing and he's out of order. This is essentially the accusations they're making against Paul. And so because of that, they bring him before this Areopagus. Now, they had, an, again, an unofficial role as kind of the religious, philosophical arbiters of Athens. You want to teach something? You come to us first. And so they bring Paul before them, not going, wow, we're interested in this, but who do you think you are? That's, that's what they're doing. So understand that Paul is in this, and he's not exactly facing 
an open crowd. <laughs> this is a fairly arrogant, maybe even not, not physically hostile, but at the very least intellectually, culturally hostile group of folks. And they've got these two accusations. And so Paul responds, and you even see in his response, that here's what's going on. He sees all of them, and he says there in verse 22, I observe that you're very religious. That probably could be better uh, stated superstitious. Paul wasn't exactly being complimentary back. He knew why he was there, and he kind of says, listen, I, you guys are a bunch of superstitious folks, aren't you? Because I see that you've got not only all these temples for every god imaginable, and if you could have a god of something, they had a statue to it. For If you had a god of a tree or a god of a shrub or a god of a river or a god of a town, they had it everywhere you looked. He says, I see you got gods everywhere, and you're so superstitious, you're so afraid that you might have missed something, even with all this other stuff. You've got, a, you've got a statue over here, you have a temple over here, to even what you don't know, the unknown God. He goes, now that's a superstitious folks. You're so confident in your abilities, you, you, you're trying to cover your tracks. That's what he's trying to say. Um, so, he's, he's not exactly being complimentary. He's kind of calling them out. And he says this, what you don't know, verse 23, what you don't know, I'm here to tell you. Now, I don't know how they perceive that. I have a hunch. <laughs> Probably the same way that uh, when you have somebody you want to tell them, listen, what you don't know, I'm about to tell you. I'm pretty sure it's about the same response. So they, Paul says, I'm going to tell you what it is that you don't know. I'm going to make to you known what you is for you unknown. And he begins by this saying this, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now again, why is this important? What do they require for a, quote, new deity to be acknowledged in Athens? That you have to build a temple. Real gods, as far as they're concerned, have temples. And if you don't have a temple, you don't have a God. And Paul says, well, that's a bunch of malarkey. That's a Greek word, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Malarkey is not Greek. It could be, though. Guys, that was funny. Okay. Just... That's a bunch of malarkey. He says, listen, the God that you, don't, that you have a statue to here in ignorance, or a little plaque over here that you don't know who it is, this God doesn't need your temple. This God made everything that's out there. Trees, rocks, rivers, mountains, oceans. If it exists... He made it. What makes you think that the one who made everything needs a little box put together by you? Now, you and I, we don't, we don't have temples perhaps in the way that the ancient Greeks did or even the way God had prescribed Israel to have a, a temple for a short time. But the reality is, we do keep God in boxes sometimes, don't we? We do have, we have, def, we have God defined. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this before. But it's just one of those, it's one of those, uh, uh, clearly, it's one of those phrases that was uttered to me by a professor at one point in time that uh, some 27 years later has stuck in my mind. The, the professor was by no means one of the better professors I ever had in, in seminary. In fact, he was probably one of the, the poorer ones. <laughs> but the very first day of class, he said this, this room is filled with a bunch of young men and women who think they've got God figured out, and every one of you is wrong somewhere, so don't get cocky. And here's the reality. You and I are no different than those of us sitting in that room in that seminary class 27 years ago. 
We think we have a pretty good handle on who God is. We've defined what God can and can't do. And the reality is we're all wrong somewhere. Maybe more than one somewheres. We've got God so defined, and usually for the most part, we define God in the way that we think we makes, us, makes us comfortable. And Paul's here to say, listen, the God who made everything, you can't put him in one of these little temples over here. He's not defined by your little works of your hands, your, your, your little box. He made everything. And that leads him to his next point. He says, God does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Listen, there is not a thing that you and I can bring to the worship of God that he needs. Now, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. When you're reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the creation accounts, the accounts of Adam and Eve and all the stuff with Noah and all there, one of the things that's happening through that whole account is this. The way the world, the way these ancient religions, whether it's the Greek ones or the Roman ones or the Babylonian ones or the Egyptian ones, or pick one. The way they relate to God is this. Well, if I do this for him, then he'll do this for me. I'll make a sacrifice to him, and he'll make sure we got rain on the crops. If I sacrifice this, he'll make sure to give me a victory over my enemies. Fill in the blanks. If I do this, then God will do that, because I give him something he wants, something he needs, then he gives me something I want. And God does not actually operate this way. God is not bargaining with you as if you have something to offer him that he needs. What God is, is worthy of worship by this very nature of his existence. We worship him because he's worthy of worship. And he does things, he loves us, he may do something to demonstrate his love for us, not because we did something for him, but because it's in his nature to do that. He is by nature a loving, a providing, a healing God. All these things we think about. He's also holy and righteous. The Bible even describes him as being willing to be a judge and willing to, to, uh, to even be jealous at times. He's all these things, and we have to make sure we understand those things correctly and not interpret them the way we act out those things. But he does not need us. God is not barring you with us and saying, listen, I really miss worship and relationship. If you'll do this for me, I will do this for you. That's not the way this works. We're not bargaining with God. And that's the way, as, as, as he saw all these idols, what Paul was seeing was not only a failure to worship God, he was also seeing a misunderstanding of who God is in the sense they think that they have something God needs. They have a building. They have a sacrifice. They've got a ritual. They've got a certain this. They've got a certain that. And God doesn't need any of it, he says. He is who he is regardless of whether you acknowledge it or not. So he, he is focused upon here the glory and the person of God. God needs nothing from us. By the way, what we're seeing here is this. I'm going to sum this up as we get to more details. As Paul has walked through Athens, as his spirit has been provoked, as he's finding himself in this dialogue, in this conversation, and now he's actually kind of preaching, if you will, as he sees all these falsehoods and all these things going on around him, all that Paul is really boiling this down to is this. I want you, he says, to look at who God is. You and I can find ourselves very easily in the course of our life, even as believers, whether we're having conversations with someone at work or at Walmart or on social media or in the home or whatever it might be, and we find someone we disagree with and, and maybe we are genuinely correct and they're genuinely wrong or whatever the situation may be. And 
we, we, we find ourselves in this situation and we lose track of what we're, what we're really there for. And we, we, we end up focusing upon this detail or, or that detail or make sure they think they know that we're right and they're wrong, whatever it might be. And in the process, we have failed to point people to God. What Paul is doing here, what's motivating Paul, what's got him riled up, what's got him active, what's got him preaching, what's got him in Athens to begin with, is the very character and the nature of God himself. So he says, listen, I want you to, he's, I'm going to preach all this about who God is. So he doesn't need your buildings. He doesn't need your rituals. He doesn't need all these things you think you can provide for God. In fact, verse 26, he says, he made all of you. From one man, we know that to be Adam, from one man we all came, all over the face of the earth, determined through history, the nations, the ethnic groups, the, it's all there. God made all of us, all of us, and I know we talk about races and racism and all that type of stuff, but the reality is we are all one human race. We all have our same, we all have the same ultimate heritage, and we're all created by God in His image. Doesn't matter if you're African or Asian or American or whatever else Asian, whatever Asians are, are out there. We are all created in and from this one man descended by the work of God. Now look at what he did. He, Paul's given us a, a big cosmic history lesson here. He goes, God did all this. Now we know, Paul doesn't really go into detail here, we know that there was a separation of languages and, and, and groups that resulted from man's sin at Babel. But even that is fulfilling God's plan as his hope, as God's desire is, do, as man has been separated, just like we're separated from him because of sin, we're separated from each other sometimes because, because of sin as well. But God's his big picture is to do what? Bring everything back. We saw part of that at Pentecost when the languages of Babel, the separated languages of Babel, are now reversed and the spirit and the gift of tongues at, at Pentecost are reversing Babel. They can all be heard. They can all be understood. They all hear what God is saying through the apostles. And what the church is to be doing is part of this process. As God re brings everyone together, Paul says here that they would all seek God. He's determined to, through their, he's got them all the appointed times and boundaries of all these nations and peoples, but he wants to bring them through that separation, back to him so they can be one children, one people of God once again. God's character, by the way, is made known and revealed in the act of reconciliation. When I was in seminary, um, back when I played basketball and I could do that without hurting myself, <laughs> I, can't, I, I go play basketball now and something's going to get pulled. It's just the way it is. I was, I was playing ball, and, and um, uh, I had a somewhat competitive streak in me, and I and, uh, wasn't doing particularly well in this game, and, and there's a, there's the, guy, the guy playing defense on me stole the ball from me, ticked me off. So we're, now the ball's, this ball's just kind of bouncing out there, so we're, we're both going for the ball. Now, honestly, this really wasn't intentional, but in the process of both of us going for the ball, it appears... I knocked him over and tripped him. It wasn't, it wasn't on purpose. We were just going for the ball, right? Just good, clean ball, right? He got upset. And so now we have these two preacher wannabes 
angry at one another over a basketball. And yes, it's as stupid as it sounds. Now, sin does that. Makes us look silly, makes us look stupid. And I had to, I, I, I really don't, I didn't do it on purpose. But I had to go up to him and say, guess what? I'm sorry. Forgive me, I acted wrong. Now, he, he, kind of, he did the same thing back. Now, in the end, we reconciled, we shook hands. Truth be told, I didn't know who he was, really. I didn't really know him that well. Um, but we actually, for a brief time, became friends. We, had, we parted ways the next semester. He took off, and I, I, I couldn't even, I don't even remember his name, honestly, at this point. But it was, while, while the sin was, was wrong, the act of reconciliation was an act of God. And the truth is, by, by reconciling, by being made right with someone, by being made one with someone that we were once separated from, that is revealing the character of God. And Paul was saying, listen, this unknown God over here that you guys have this temple to, one, he doesn't need a temple. He's the one who made everything. He's the one that keeps you alive. You don't need to keep him alive. He's made everything. So first thing you guys need to know is he's over it all. And secondly, you need to know this. That his business is about reconciling and making a one united people. Now, we know that today, but understand, even in Paul's day, this was an issue, especially for the Jewish people. This was a real issue. They did not want Gentiles in. And God, we see this repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. This is not what God is doing. It's in reconciliation that we see part of the character of God. He goes on to say, that, he's not, that God himself is not far from us, for in him we live and move and exist. And he's, as even some of your poets have said, we are also his children. In other words, we sometimes use the phrase common grace. That God demonstrates his love for us and not just in providing what we as a human race need to survive. And in that, whether it's food to eat, air to breathe, water to drink, that we see the fact that God has grace and has a love for all of us, even if we don't necessarily want to respond to Him, that God gives us a measure of grace so that we will look for Him and realize, oh, wait a minute, why do I have something to eat? Because there's one there who loves me. I need to look for Him. <laughs> this is why God gives us these things. And knowing who God is, the last thing that Paul says here is this, and this is really not popular today, but Paul talks about it. Paul says this at the end of all this, there in, uh, there in verse 31. Verse 30, actually. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God's now declaring to men that all people everywhere should do what? Repent. Because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Yes, God loves. Yes, God created. Yes, God is overall, He gives us all everything we have he's got it he listens he gives us a common grace but there's also going to be a day we're going to be held accountable for whether or not we accepted him and obeyed him and worshiped him acknowledged who he is there's going to be that day that we're going to be held accountable for our actions and our attitudes and yes even our worship so what paul does is he sees a city a people who are bending over backwards doing everything they can to not acknowledge 
the one true God. And then he, he dialogues with them and points to them and points them to the character and the nature of this one true God. He created all that there is. He's bringing about this idea of he's going to reconcile us to himself. He wants to bring us to be made into one people. And there is a coming judgment that we need to be ready for through repentance. This is what Paul is doing. He's pointing these folks to the one true, for them, unknown God. Now, the reality is our task this morning is no different than Paul's was. We live in a world that by and large is unaware of the true nature and the true character of the one true God. And like Paul, perhaps as we see our world and see our culture and see uh, the, the people around us unaware of who God is, sometimes our response is to get angry. And Paul got angry. I'm not denying that. But Paul also began to teach in the dialogue because his goal is not to be right. His goal is to see people reconciled with the Father, to know the one, for them, unknown God. That's our goal today. The truth is, our task is to make God known, to make the unknown known. I want to challenge you. We're going to talk a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. You're going to hear next Sunday morning some of our students and some of the others who have gone on mission trips this past summer, you're going to hear them speak about the things they saw God do. It's going to be an exciting morning. It's going to be an encouraging and uplifting morning. And you're also going to be challenged with this idea, this now and next week, and that is this. Are you going to make the unknown God known this week? Do you know Him in such a way that you can't help but tell others about Him? We have coming up here in a couple months, we've heard us talking about it already, something called One Day. October 2nd, first Saturday of October, there's going to be a boatload of believers from around the state of Arkansas descending on Russellville to do missions for a day. And one of those places they're going to be doing them is right here in London. And we as a church are not only hosting some of those missions projects, but we are hopefully going to be part of those missions projects. That means, uh, it means you sign up for it. You may be working in Russellville or Danville or Clarksville or Dover, wherever you might be, but you're going to be taking the gospel that day to those who do not know him. Some of you may remember that last year, we were supposed to do this last year, COVID kind of wiped it out. We went ahead and did a no-sale yard sale here last year at the church parking lot. Some of you were part of that. And you may remember hearing us talk about how we had conversations that morning with people from our area who live within two miles of this church. I remember having a conversation with a, with a lady who did not know the name of Jesus. And I'm not making that. She did not know what it was. A couple others who, they heard the name, but they didn't know the first thing about it. They didn't know what it meant. And these are people who live within two miles of here. I know we kind of assume, well, we're in Arkansas, everyone knows about Jesus, right? Mm -mm, that's not true. Guess what? We're going to have the opportunity, maybe this week, but for sure on October 2nd, to make the unknown known. And if you know Him, if you have a glimpse of God's glory, if He has worked in your heart and life, I know that you want Him known as much as, everyone, as, much, as, much as I do. We have the opportunity to make the unknown known. 
Now, maybe this morning you're in this room and you go, I don't really know him. I've read about him. I've heard someone talk about him. But I don't really know him. My prayer for you this morning would be to not walk out these doors until the unknown God has become known for you. It's very simple. You don't have to know every detail about God when you walk out these doors this morning. All you have to know is this. He created you. He loves you. Christ died on the cross and resurrected so that He could be made right. You could be reconciled with Him. You could be one with Him. And that He dearly wants you to respond to Him in repentance to make that happen. That's it. If for you this morning the unknown God is not, has not yet become known and you want to know Him, we're going to have a time of, of worship here in just a moment. I wanted to ask that you would even respond right there. Don't wait. We'll, we'll take time. We'll talk. Even this morning. If you want to talk following the worship service, we'll talk. Because more than anything else, I want you to walk out of these doors this morning knowing what was previously unknown.